while they're leaving, uh, let me just take this opportunity to thank um, all of you. I see some of our, um, our search committee people out who some I've only met through Zoom. And so it's good to see you in person. Um, I, I'm grateful to the search committee. I'm grateful to the welcome committee who made that lovely sign. It was fun to drive up here this morning and, and feel so welcomed. And so thank you for that. I do want you to know I consider it an absolute sacred trust to serve as your interim and to care for you during this time of transition. Um, and that begins today. For me, even preaching is an act of pastoral care. Even when it's prophetic, it's rooted in care. And so I am just really, uh, again, just honored. It feels like a sacred trust. The fact that you give me your attention is really a trust. I, I approach preaching, you know, Henry uh, Emerson Fosdick was a, was a pastor of Riverside Church in New York City. And he once described preaching as standing on a third-story building with an eyedropper and dropping medicine out to a crowd below and hoping that it hits somebody in the right spot. It is daunting. I know everyone comes with different needs, different concerns, different things vying for your attention. Uh, and I take that trust very seriously. I hope that each week I proclaim good news that reaches you where you are and us where we are. Um, I, I feel like the Apostle Paul, you know, I approach it with fear and trembling uh, because it's an awesome task, but also it's an impossible task. Words, human words, will never ever be adequate for divine mysteries. And yet, and yet, and yet we proclaim the good news. Let us pray. Gracious God, as we turn now to your scriptures, we pray in the name of the word made flesh, that the word read and the word proclaimed and the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and even pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So our scripture passage today, just to give you a little bit of intro, hopefully um, you all got the newsletter this week where I encouraged you to read Psalm 42 and Luke 15. Um, so Luke 15 is where Jesus tells three parables so if you read this, maybe you remember, he's teaching to a crowd, and he tells three parables. And uh, in your Bible, you might have seen titles for those parables. Those titles are not in the original text. You probably, they probably said, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a prodigal son. I think that's a terrible mistitling for the last parable. I think it should be a lost coin, a lost sheep, I mean a lost sheep, a lost coin, and two lost sons. But that's the parable we're going to read today. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Some of you are familiar with it. And so you'll be able to fill out those parts that we're not reading. Um, for others, you're going to get the gist of the story by this reading. And woven into it is uh, words from a psalm of lament, Psalm 42. Uh, lament psalms help us to articulate uh, universal human struggles grief, regret, 
existential wrestling, those kinds of things. So I've woven that into this, and Joe's going to come out, uh, come up, and help me read uh, this passage. And, and you may be used to, to reading it up there. Uh, today, I'm just asking you to receive it, to listen. And, and it's okay not to read along. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus, and the religious leaders and the experts in the law were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So the father divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he traveled to a distant country and there he squandered his property and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed his pigs. But when he came to himself, when he came to himself, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, I will get up and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. And while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and he ran and he put his arms around him and he kissed him. And the father said, let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead to beg the elder son. But the elder son answered his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you've never even given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who's devoured your property, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So while I am with you in this time of transition, we've been charged with answering or addressing three questions. Who are you? Who is your neighbor? And what is God calling you to do and be? So we're going to start the next three weeks, because then I'm gone, and then I'll be back full force in November. But for the next three weeks, I just want to frame those questions. What is our work together? Who are you? Now, some of you may be guests today, and, and you may not be coming back, or you may not be super engaged at Kairos. That's okay, because what's true on the macro level is also true on the micro level. So while we're talking about Kairos as a community, 
discussing and exploring who are we, we're also giving you an opportunity, each and every one of you, an opportunity to ask the same question in your own life. So it's a question pertinent not only to the group, the church, but to individuals. It's a simple question, isn't it? Who are you? I mean, that can't be too complicated. Won't we get that in a week or two? You know, psychologists tell us that the psychosocial development of adolescence is when you really struggle with this identity formation, identity versus confusion. So maybe you remember being an adolescent and, and really wondering, who am I? Maybe not in those exact words. Uh, maybe you live with an adolescent who is really struggling with that. Maybe you live with someone, or you can remember feeling like Alice felt when she was uh, confronted with the question, who are you? We're going to have a little clip. says the caterpillar. Who are you? And Alice says, well, I hardly know. I've changed so many times since I woke up this morning. Again, maybe you live with someone like that. Maybe you remember feeling that way. It can be confusing to figure out who you are. Now, although psychologists tell us that's a task for adolescents, let's be honest, there's plenty of times in life in every season of life where that question confronts us. Maybe you go from being a big fish in a small high school to a small fish in a big college, and you wonder, who am I? Maybe you went from single to being married, and all of a sudden you wondered, who am I now? Or you went from married to being single. Or you had children and you weren't that fancy, footloose and fancy free person you must have thought you were. Or your children leave and you walk into an empty home where the sound echoes across the walls and you wonder, who am I now? You see, during those times of transition, in all phases of our life, that question can be unnerving. You, maybe you felt like Dave felt in this movie scene. So, Dave, <laughs> tell us about yourself. Who are you? Well, I'm a, an executive assistant at a major tech products company. Dave, I don't want you to tell us what you do. I want you to tell us who you are. Oh, all right. Um, I'm a pretty good guy. I, uh, I like playing tennis on occasion, but also not your house, Dave. Just simple. Tell us who you are. Thanks, Dave. Maybe you could give me an example of a good afternoon. Uh, what do you say? 
got to answer, guys. Who are you? Yeah, it's, it seems like a simple question, but it goes deep. And here's why. I want to share with you a, an illustration that literally was shared with me by a youth leader when I was in high school. It has stuck with me. I think of it many, many times uh, a, a week um, because it's an apt metaphor. Um, and, and I'm going to get you to participate. We're going to see an image in a second when I um, ask Jonathan to put it up there. And when it comes up there, I want you to just simply say, to answer one simple question for me, say it out loud, off the top of your head, don't think about it too much. You can change your answer, but what's the first answer that comes to your mind? How many squares do you see? Twelve, sixteen, seventeen, twenty-three. Too many. So I'm super bad with math and everything, but um, never trust a number, I tell you. But I'm told there's 31 squares. So some mathematician can figure it out and tell me if that's right. But here it is. There's the four by the one by ones. So immediately you say 16. But then there's the big one, oh, 17. But if you keep looking deeper, there's the two by twos. And then there's the three by threes. Look, all of us have a 16 square image. I was uh, speaking at Montreat Youth Conference this summer and literally I was out walking and there was a person with a dog and I greeted him and they go, oh, how nice, you know, are you from Asheville? And I said, no, no, I'm not. And she goes, oh, you look like it. <laughs> okay. So you see in our 16 squares, we make a lot of judgments about people. We assume a lot. And sometimes we get caught up in our 16 squares. Isn't that what, what Dave is doing? I mean, I do this, I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm this, I'm that, I do. What's the 16 square of the younger brother? Rebel, disobedient, failure, loser, bad boy. What's the 16 square of the older brother? Obedient good boy, hardworking, industrious. But underneath, they're both struggling. I'm restless, I'm discouraged. You see, the work of finding out who you are is the work of going beyond the 16 squares. Because it would be really easy during this time or during any time in our life when we start feeling that anxiety, the uncertainty, to just say, well, let's make sure we have good programs. Let's make sure we get a good preacher. Let's make sure we do this, that, that, that. Let's, let's do all the 16 square things just right. It's like that in our own lives, right? Let's make sure I make everybody happy. I meet all the demands that are on me. But we don't take the time 
to do what the younger brother did. He came to himself. He went beyond his own 16 squares and looked deeper. The 22, you know, here's the thing about ourselves, our truest selves, they're infinite. There's not just 31. Because you know what that truest self is? The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, calls it the image of God in you. The Apostle Paul called it Christ in you, or the new self. Jesus called it the soul. And he said, if you lose that and gain the whole world, you've got nothing. And he said, there's a self to lose and a self to find. And that's who you are. But that requires that we do the work of coming to ourselves. It's a strange thing, isn't it? How can you leave yourself? And yet, I bet everyone in here has had an experience of knowing that you were in the far country, even if you hadn't left home. Because you see, the younger son wasn't lost because he left home. He was lost because he left himself. And the older son, who didn't leave home, was lost in the far country of resentment and self-righteousness. And the work of coming to ourselves. John Calvin, maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't, that's okay, he's a theologian in our tradition, says the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self cannot be separated. And in fact, the knowledge of self usually comes first. And what it does is it takes you by the hand and leads you to God. So the work before us is the work of a lifetime. Unless you think, oh, Pam, all those examples, they're funny, they're and those are people, you know, who don't have faith. Let me read you a poem written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a theologian and faithful Christian minister who was arrested for Nazi resistance. He wrote this in jail. Who am I? They often tell me I step from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. But who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equally, smilingly, proudly. Am I then really all that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I know myself to be? restless and longing and sick like a bird in a cage struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat weary and empty at praying at thinking at making faint and ready to say farewell to it all who am i am i one person today and tomorrow another am i both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptibly woebegone weakling who am i they mock me 
these lonely questions of mine. Who are we? Who am I? It's hard work, but it's good work. And in the end, when the young brother comes to himself, he joins a celebration. And the elder brother who refuses to come to himself and do the work of finding his own soul and how that soul can be expressed in the world, he stays outside the party. Let's do this work together. It's work that individuals can do. It's work that our nation needs to do right now. It's work that the larger church needs to do. Who are we? Lots of people say the name Jesus, but who are we? So it's good work. It's hard work. But in the end, we will celebrate and rejoice, for we belong to God. Amen.